0: Good morning, church. Good morning. The scripture reading today is in John chapter 5. If you have never opened a Bible before, don't know where that is, it's in the latter portion of the book towards the end. There's just about that much from the end. Now um, yeah, I'll give you a... Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me,
1: Thanks, Adasa. Good morning. Great to see all of you here. A couple quick announcements before we get into the Word today. First, uh, one of our pastors, Pastor Mike, has just begun a well-earned sabbatical. He's been pushing hard for years and years and years and years, and he's going to be out of the office between now and about the first week of October. So if at any point over the next I mean, what, month and a half, two months, you find that you need to talk to Mike or to another pastor, if Mike would be your normal pastoral contact, Uh, to make sure that you get a quick response from folks on staff, please reach out to somebody else. If you're confused about how to do that, just pull up the front page of the website and call the front desk and you'll get connected with somebody. But in the meantime, while Mike is on sabbatical, I would urge all of you, be praying for him be praying that this would be a time uh, where as he steps aside to rest, that he hears from God, that he meets with God, that he is restored, that he is refreshed, uh, and that it would just be a, a really sweet time of peace and appreciation. This is a great thing that you as a congregation do for your pastors, giving them an opportunity to step aside and just wait on God for a significant period of time. I would say that there's not a ton of churches that do that, but I really think it's in all of your best interest to be encouraging your pastors to prioritize time alone with God. All right. Second. Maybe. Adam just announced that we're gonna be doing this tour of Madison, that there's gonna be international students coming from all over the world, descending on Madison, trying to figure out how to make this place their new home, and I think that one of the ministries that is most effectively positioned to reach out and meet those people where they are, and believe me, I personally, I empathize with all these folks because I know what it's like to move to an entirely new country and then to have to figure out what life is like, but one of the ministries in our church where we're best positioned to meet those folks as they first start to get their feet wet, getting acclimated to Madison is our small groups ministry. Our small groups ministry, every quarter, each small group looks around the city around them, looks around the church and asks, where are, where are there people in need and what can we do to help them? Uh, so if you are a small group leader, you've already received an email about this tour of Madison. But if you aren't yet a, a, either a member of a small group or if you aren't yet maybe leading a small group, I just wanna say, we have need of more leaders. And if you're the sort of person who can agree with the following statement, Christianity is a team sport. If you're the sort of person who could agree that Christianity is the sort of thing that's best done with other people and not on your own, and you feel like maybe God is calling you to step up and to make a space for other people to come and experience what it's like to try to do Christianity together rather than on their own, we would love to talk to you. Uh, Some of you have already reached out to me in the last month or so since I last preached and mentioned that we have need of more small group leaders. We're putting a meeting on the calendar for all of those folks. But for a church of our size, numerically about 800 adults every Sunday, it's very, very hard to have small group opportunities, to have small groups available to meet the need of people who want to join. We have more people who want into small groups than we have places in small groups currently to place them. So if God might be leading you to step up and say, yep, I'm willing to open my home one night a week for everybody to come together to talk about the Word of God, to pray together, and to look for opportunities like Tour of Madison where we can be extending the love of Jesus tangibly to the people in the city around us, and that's you. Please email me, dwhite at highpointchurch.org, and we'll get back to you this week. All right, will you all join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, I thank you that Uh, On a very busy day in Jerusalem, when there's crowds all over the place, you saw someone who was in need, and you stepped aside to talk to them and to meet their need. So Lord, we come to you today confessing uh, that we want you to stop and talk to us, that we want to hear your voice and experience your power. Lord, we admit that, like you say, apart from you, we can do nothing, so we choose, we choose to come aside to try to abide in you, to seek you, and then to see you work in us, through us, more than we could ever accomplish on our own. So please, Lord, take every opportunity in this sermon to bear good fruit that will glorify your Father. That's what I ask in Jesus' name, amen. A few months ago, we had sort of a special meeting here at church. We're sitting down on this stage. We had Pastor Nick sitting on one side, and then we had the Roman Catholic Bishop of Madison sitting on the other side, Bishop Hyang. And for those of you who were here that night, You'll remember that the point to the, the point of the whole meeting was to get together and for Nick and for Bishop to talk to each other about how their reading of sources from the early church, like some of the first Christians from the first couple centuries that the church was in existence, how reading those folks had influenced, informed, and, and shaped their experience of the Christian life. And uh, Bishop focused on one guy, his name was Augustine, and in a, in a past life, I used to study and teach the early church, and the joke for people like me was that you either studied the early church or you studied Augustine, because there was just so much Augustine to study, and he was such a like, rich and complicated thinker that once you got into Augustine, you didn't really have time for anything else. Uh, I am not the Augustine guy, I'm the other guy, but I, uh, one, one of the stories that Bishop told is a great story that I think really every Christian should have in mind, because it illustrates so perfectly Just one of the most important dynamics of our spiritual life. Uh, And Bishop told the story from Augustine's autobiography where Augustine, as a young man, looks over a fence and he sees some pears hanging in somebody else's tree and in their field. And so he hops over the fence and he steals the pears and he runs away with them and eats them. And afterward, he's he's, he's reflecting on this this from relative maturity, I mean, this is decades later, and he's like, the pears weren't even that good. They weren't even ripe. But I stole them just to eat them, and then I didn't enjoy them. And I think that so perfectly captures just the nature of sin. And this is Augustine's point, is that at some level, all sin, taking that forbidden fruit, like from Adam and Eve in the garden taking the forbidden fruit, to Augustine in North Africa stealing somebody's semi-ripe pears... We all feel this desire for what we don't have. We all feel this desire for the pleasure of sin. And then once we get it, once we get our hands on it, put hand to mouth, start to chew, we realize this isn't that great anyway. So why do we keep doing it? Why do we really keep doing it? I mean, this is one of Augustine's big questions. And later on in life, when it's not the temptation for pears anymore. Later on in life, as he's starting to become a Christian, for him, the great temptation is lust, is sex. And again, from the vantage point of decades later, he looks back on his younger self and just kinda has to laugh at himself because he recounts what he prayed to God as a young man. You wanna know what it was when he was dealing with the temptation of lust? He said, God, please give me chastity and give me self-control, but don't do it yet that divided will that he saw within himself that he really, really wanted at one part of his life to obey God, to submit to God, to walk in purity, to walk in holiness, and yet at the same time would look at the same God that he's asking for help and victory with lust and say, but wait a little while because I've got some pleasure to experience first, but as Augustine learned, as all of us learned, whatever our temptation is, it's gonna be the equivalent of a semi right pair. It's never gonna satisfy, it's never gonna be as good as we think it's gonna be. And I, I mention this because I think a lot of Christians today, we feel exactly like Augustine felt. I mean, we think, and sometimes we'll even look at God, whether we'll admit this or not, what we're really praying to God is something like, free me from greed, but first, make sure my retirement is funded. Or, free me from gluttony, but first let me go on this cruise with its all-you-can-eat buffets just for a couple weeks. Or, like, free me from pride, but first make sure that I get that promotion at work. Those are the thoughts that we often really have and that we have to grapple with as believers. And it reveals something just profoundly uh, true, but also potentially discouraging about the Christian life, which is that even when we really, really want to do the right thing, when we think that we have looked through the Word of God and determined the right thing and we want to do it, deep in our heart of hearts, there's this thing that makes us not really want to do it. And we have to go back and forth deciding which voice we're going to listen to It's easy to become emotionally overwhelmed by temptation. It's easy to become emotionally overwhelmed by the power of sin within us. Uh, So here really is the single point for today's sermon. It's a great story that we just read. John chapter five is an amazing chapter, but if I could boil this all down to one point, it would be good news for Augustine, it would be good news for you and for me, and it's this. When God gives us a command for how to live, he always also gives us the power to fulfill the command. When God gives us a command, he is not a bully up in heaven like tantalizing us with something that's always gonna be out of reach. When he commands us and says, do this, he also always gives you and me the power that we need to fulfill and obey his command so that we live a life of righteousness. This morning, this is what we're gonna do. First, I'm just gonna kind of walk through this passage again. We're gonna get that story back in our ears. Especially, we're gonna try to empathize with the perspective of the disabled man lying by the side of the pool and what it must have been like to encounter Jesus and suddenly be standing up on your feet. And then we're gonna talk about that point, what this story teaches us about a life of obedience to God and why sin is ultimately no master over us. Sound good? All right. So first, just remember the setting for this story. This is taking place in Jerusalem. This is taking place during a feast. So it's kind of like being, I don't know, like downtown on the campus on a Saturday that's a game day in November. You know what it's like to be down on like Regent Street or down on State Street on a Tuesday. Now imagine that you're there on a Saturday and there's just tens of thousands of people who have flooded in who aren't normally there. So the crowds are everywhere. And this guy who's been disabled for 38 years. We don't know how long exactly he's been at the pool, but just imagine lying down disabled for 38 years and probably some significant portion of it you have spent at this pool with five porticos because this is basically the equivalent of an ancient hospital. You're surrounded by other sick people who desperately want to be well. You want to be well, but this is really your only recourse is to come to this pool. And so you're lying there, and you're lying there, and you're lying there. And you're watching now these crowds of people who aren't normally there. These are the out-of-towners who are descending for the festival just to have a good time. And I've got to imagine that like most of us, when we're experiencing suffering, this guy's just got to be looking out at these crowds and thinking these folks have no idea how good they have it. They probably don't even see me lying here but those folks with the full use of their legs and bodies going up to sacrifice, those folks don't even know how good they have it. Because that's not just an economic good, like being able to use your body to work to provide for your family. It's also a spiritual good. I mean, if you go back to the law, people who are disabled aren't allowed to enter into the court of the temple. Like, it's basically almost like being permanently unclean and disqualified from the presence of God. So suddenly, while you're having all these thoughts, this guy who you've never seen before just walks up to you and he looks down at you and he's like, do you want to get well? Do you want to get better? And if I put myself in the disabled guy's position, I think that is like a borderline insulting question. Well, I mean, of course I want to get better. Why wouldn't I want to get better? I've, I haven't been able to use my legs probably for decades. I see all of these other people around me enjoying the full use of their legs. If I got better, I'd probably appreciate my legs more than anyone else in Jerusalem. Why wouldn't I want to get better? But at the same time, you're actually, you're kind of tempted to try and answer the question because apparently you would think to yourself, if somebody's asking me, don't I want to get better, they also assume that I can do something that would make myself better. So I start to explain, well, you know, the water's troubled every now and again, but Even a blind guy has an advantage over me when the water is troubled because even a blind guy has the full use of their legs and as long as they're pointed in the right direction, they're gonna make it into the pool. I can't even get up to get myself into the water. The guy acts like he doesn't even hear you. (laughs) He just reaches down, grabs your hand, tells you, grab your bedroll, stand up, walk, and be on your way. And so before you know it, you do. You're standing there for the first time in decades. And the world looks a whole lot different from five or six feet up than it did from 18 inches down. I mean, everything suddenly changes. You're just, just, you're overjoyed, so what do you do? I mean, just in that state of ecstasy, like, oh my gosh, here I am, I'm better. You pick up your mat, you throw it over your shoulder, and you start to walk away. You haven't walked since maybe when you were a kid. I mean, you've been disabled for 38 years, so all of the happy memories flood back to you, what it must have been like to be a young person at home with your parents, with your family, holy well, and you're just going on your way overjoyed when suddenly in your rear view mirror, you hear a siren and you see cherries and berries flashing. And so you stop, and the officer walks up to you and says, uh, excuse me, sir you have an improperly stowed load. It's the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to be carrying anything. And then you realize, oh my gosh, it is the Sabbath day. So for those of you who are maybe not familiar with the Sabbath, just imagine what it would be like to be on University Avenue headed towards downtown Madison. You get a flat tire. Somebody comes over, helps you change the flat tire, and then they say to you, hey, you're good to go. Now drive 120 miles an hour without stopping straight toward the Capitol. Ignore all all traffic signals. Ignore all posted speed limits. That is the equivalent of what this guy realizes that Jesus now has told him to do. Jesus made him well, but then he told him to just flagrantly violate some of the most important legal and social norms that this guy and the people in Jerusalem have ever heard of. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then it dawns on you. If if you were keeping track of your own life like a story, you thought... You thought that this story was the story of the day that God made you whole. You thought that this was all about maybe Jesus' power over sickness. And then you realize, no. No, this is a story about how you're supposed to live once you get well. It's a bit of a buzzkill, but I mean, still, you can explain to the people, like to the cop, who's pulled you over, that there has been a literal miracle, that the power of God has actually touched your physical body, raised you up from the floor so that you can walk on your own two feet again. And that's about the time when they administer a field sobriety test and ask you to blow on a straw, right? We don't actually know what the scribes and the Pharisees say back to the guy at this point. I mean, because the scene just kind of cuts right there. It cuts at that moment of tension. The screen just fades to black. And here's the question then. Okay, the recognized spiritual moral authority in Jerusalem says, do not carry that bedroll right now. Jesus, the guy who actually touched you where you experienced the power of God giving life to the death in your body said, go ahead and carry that bedroll. There's a tension here. What do you do and why? How do you know? That's the position that this guy is in. screen comes back to life. It's a few days later, and this guy's back in the temple. He's wandering around in the temple for the first time. He's not just like, he can actually enter into the temple because he's no longer disabled. He's no longer disqualified. And then Jesus stops him, the guy who he didn't really know who he was before, but now he realizes that it's Jesus. And Jesus stops him and says, look, you're better now. You're recovered Stop sinning lest something at worse happens to you. And then you have to realize this. Whatever you thought was maybe going on, you have to acknowledge that Jesus probably isn't some sort of moral nihilist who's just interested in healing you, but isn't interested in how you live once you're healed. So when Jesus tells this guy to do something that he think constitutes breaking the Sabbath... Jesus is still a guy who cares about how to live and how to please God and how to avoid sin, and that's gotta be extra confusing. Jesus is telling you don't sin, but according to the, like, the spiritual authorities that you've recognized for your entire life, Jesus is telling you to sin. So what is Jesus actually telling you to do? So you run and you tell the folks with the badges, the scribes and the Pharisees, the people who really know the law, hang on a second, it was Jesus who told me to do this. And that's where the story ends, kind of like with a giant question mark. What is, I mean What does this mean for the scribes and the Pharisees? What does this mean for the man who's been made well? I mean, we're not really told what it means for the man who's been made well, except that he reports the story, and then that the scribes and the Pharisees start to persecute Jesus because he's violated the Sabbath. So I ask myself, what is this story all about? Because this is one story, not really two stories. What is this story all about? Why do we have a sign of Jesus' identity as the Word of God, the Son of God, the Son of Man? Like, later in the chapter five, what John says is that the point to the signs is that they testify that Jesus has been sent from the Father, right? They're, They're evidence, divine evidence that Jesus has the, the authority to do and to say what he does and says. So why do we have a story about Jesus' authority demonstrated in healing a lame man's legs paired with this like, controversy over what you can and can't carry on a Sabbath day? I think the answer is this. The signs tell us that Jesus is acting with the Father's own authority. And if the law of God the Torah, is authoritative because it reflects God's own word to human beings directing how they're supposed to live, then this is the conclusion that we're supposed to draw. That the healing of the lame man coupled with Jesus' command to pick up his mat and walk is a story dramatizing not just Jesus' authority over sickness, but Jesus' moral authority. That he can actually look at somebody and say, pick up your mat and walk on the Sabbath day. And that that's the thing that's as or more miraculous than the fact that he can take a sick man and restore him to health. So here's the point. This is when this story starts to become relevant for every single one of us and not just for one disabled guy who lived a tragic life lying by a pool in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. At some level, every single human being is that lame man, is that disabled guy. We all are incapable of fulfilling the commandments of God. But Jesus comes to us, grabs us by the hand or the, you know, the back of the shirt or whatever, and lifts us up and tells us to go about doing it. And Jesus didn't command a lame man to stand up and pick up his bedroll and walk just to pick him up and watch him drop again. When he picked him up, he also simultaneously gave him the power that he needed to live the life that he was calling him to and that's the way he treats every single one of us. That's it, that's the big point. Every single time you hear a commandment from God, be confident of this fact, that when the command comes, the power to obey it comes with it. Now, most of us in this room, I'm willing to bet, have some experience in our life of what it's like to know that we have a responsibility, that we need, we need to fulfill this responsibility, but we feel like we're incapable of doing it. Um, I mean, just common illustration, For me, back in 2013, I injured my knee, I needed knee surgery, Uh, and one of my friends invited me to go climb a small mountain outside of Atlanta. I couldn't do it, right? I mean, I was already peg-legging it just on flat ground, let alone climbing up the side of this mountain, but then I went in for surgery. A surgeon corrected what was wrong in my body, and afterwards, with his help, and with the help of physical therapists, I could go and climb Stone Mountain with my friends. Great. Lots of us have an experience like that that makes it relatable to at least be able to say we know what it's like to have an invitation or a calling or an obligation to do something, but we can't make it happen on our own. We just don't have the resources. We don't have the power. We don't have the ability. And for those of us who are Christians in this room, for those of us who have been baptized, for those of us who have been walking with Jesus for any length of time, I guarantee that you have some equivalent story from your spiritual life. I mean, I wish I could tell you the number of testimonies that I hear about people who at the moment of conversion have sort of a walls of Jericho moment where something that had been really, really tempting them and had a hold on their lives for years just suddenly vanished. Like the people who, who were like three pack a day smokers, raise their hand and pray the sinner's prayer and then suddenly like the desire for nicotine just leaves them for no apparent reason and, and like cigarettes start to taste disgusting to them. I've heard variations on that story I don't know how many times, whether it's, like, alcohol, drugs, nicotine, like, compulsive sexual behavior, whatever. Sometimes that stuff just happens, and the only explanation that these Christians have been able to give me from this vantage point later in their lives is that, like, the power of God did something at that moment of conversion that I couldn't have done. But even if you don't have one of those right-at-conversion walls of Jericho stories, you you probably do have another one. I I know that for me, um, this is one that happened... Probably in my early, well I guess it would have been in my late 20s when I was still a graduate student. Uh, I was studying the New Testament and I was going through the Gospel of Matthew. I was doing a seminar in the Gospel of Matthew. So it's me and like four other people and a professor who just get together and we pound through the Greek text of Matthew line by line, word by word. And we were going through the Sermon on the Mount and I'll never forget what it was like for me that day when I, when I read Matthew 6.15 and I kinda heard it for the first time when Jesus says that unless we forgive others, neither will our Heavenly Father forgive us. And I instantly was taken back in my mind to what it was like to be a part of my big, like, megachurch in West Michigan growing up in my late 20s when I was super frustrated with my spiritual leadership, super frustrated with the pastors had been trying to get them to help me in my, in my Christian life for a while, kept asking them the questions that I thought I needed answered in order to really grow as a disciple. I really wanted somebody to help me be an awesome Christian, and I just felt like they couldn't help me. And over time, I got so angry and so bitter at these folks. I mean, I had fallen foul of of what the author to Hebrews says, that we should all keep watch over ourselves to not let any root of bitterness grow up and through it many be defiled. And I realized that I had been holding on to unforgiveness against some spiritual leaders in my life for years and years at that time and that had made me a really bitter Christian. And so I remember the day when I realized I had to forgive these people, but I had been hanging on to this bitterness for so many years that I didn't even know how to lay it down. And I remember what it was like to know that God was actually actively helping me to lay it down, to recognize that even in trying to obey God's commandments, my strength was insufficient, but that suddenly the grace of God was sufficient and helped me to come to true repentance and true forgiveness against somebody who had wronged me. I know I'm not alone in that story. This is the point. If you want to live a righteous life, it's going to require God's help. And God is not surprised by that fact. God knows it. That's why when he gives us the commands that tell us how to order our lives, he also gives us the power. That man's disability is all of our sin. And it really is everybody's sin. I'm not going to take the time to go into some sort of demonstration of the universal hold of sin on people's life. You can just look at Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That is all of us. And that means that when God gives us a moral command, a standard we're going to fall short of it. What does it mean in Romans three that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? It means that for every single one of us, our lives, when we try to live up to the commandments of God, at some point we fall on our face and we fail to give God the glory that our lives are designed to give him. We all sin and no matter how hard we try, we will not on our own glorify God. And so, This is why it's great news that Jesus can, in this chapter, look down on a weak and broken human being, grab them, stand them up, and say, carry your bedroll and go, and give them the power at the same time to do it. This is why it's gonna be great news in a few chapters a few months down the road when we get to John chapter 15, and we get that awesome image of the vine and the branches that abide in the vine and so bear much fruit. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He means it. Apart from Jesus... We cannot please God. Apart from Jesus, we cannot submit our lives to the commandments of God and so glorify our Father by bearing fruit. But in the vine, in Jesus, with his power, suddenly we can. This is the normal pattern throughout all of Scripture, honestly. If you just wanted to go back through the Old Testament, I would recommend looking just at the wars of Israel, all the wars that Israel has to fight between the time when they, like, leave Egypt, in the Exodus. They depart. They're on their way into the wilderness, and then the enemies, like the people of God, start popping up and start attacking them, whether they're people like Og and Sihon, like these random kings who who think they can stop Israel, or whether they're the people of the land themselves. All throughout those stories, those stories of conquest, those stories of invasion, and then those stories of fighting to remain in the land, I mean, what's the pattern that you see? When the people are obedient to God and seeking to obey God and God is with them, then nobody can stand against them. They do go into the land. When they obey God and march around Jericho and they blow on the trumpets, what happens? Like the wall falls down. The city that they could not have taken on their own, the inhabitants who were too tall for them to overcome overpower on their own, suddenly they're able. Suddenly, like these these are the folks that their grandparents or their parents rather looked at when they sent the spies into into the land, and the spies came back and brought a bad report and said, there's no way we can do that. When God was with them, they went in and they did the impossible. They drove out seven nations that God says were stronger and mightier than they were. Something that was militarily impossible became possible. And I recount that story because, again, one of my favorite teachings on the book of Joshua from the early church Comes from a guy named Origin of Alexandria's commentary on the book of Joshua. And what he says is that Joshua, the book of Joshua is, the, is basically an allegory of the Christian soul as it fights its way into inheriting the promises of God, especially like the promises of Christian maturity, and that Joshua is a, is a prefiguration of Jesus, the one who leads us in conquest and the one who walks before us and gives us victory, taking, like taking possession of the land that God has promised for us. We need to be led into the promised land by Jesus and we need the power of God to give us victory over every enemy that stands against us, especially the ones who are actually too big and strong for us. I mean, I could go on and on. It's a great kid story, David and Goliath. Why does David conquer over Goliath when all the other guys don't? Well, you're supposed to think back a chapter to when Samuel shows up and pours the oil over David's head and the Spirit of God rushes into him. It's the spirit of God that gives David, a young man, just a boy, a shepherd boy, victory over a gigantic warrior who's been fighting like, for the Philistines since his youth. So I think the point to this, or at least one implication of this, is that if today you are finding yourself in this room as like, a frustrated, discouraged Christian, Maybe you've been really trying. Maybe you feel like you've been really fighting against one sin or like a couple sins and you're just ready to give up. Don't despair. It's still true, 2 Peter chapter one, that God has given us everything that we need for life and for godliness and that he has made us, quote, a partaker of the divine nature. So if Jesus's divine nature was enough for him to live a righteous life, that actually glorified God, that fulfilled the commandments of God, that Jesus, the guy who's like born under the law, who fulfills the law and glorifies God in everything that he says and does, Jesus does that by the power of his divine nature. That's the same divine nature that's been given to you and to me. So that means, if right now, maybe you're struggling with anger. Maybe you know what it was like to wake up this morning furious with your spouse or with your kids, and you just couldn't get it under control. The solution to your anger is not deep breathing, at least not in like the spiritual sense. I'm not opposed to people talking with good counselors and therapists. I'm not opposed to people doing what they can to order their lives in a more healthy way. But at the end of the day, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, but God gives us the power that we need for a godly life so that at those times when often we would be provoked to anger, the power of God helps us to respond with tranquility, peace, love, and acceptance towards the people who are upsetting us. Or, or like maybe, maybe because you're feeling so discouraged right now, you're tempted to fall into what the Gen Z folks are calling bed rotting. I love Gen Z slang. I think it's fantastic. Uh, so bed rotting. You know, you're, just, you're so discouraged by the way your daily life is going that all you really want to do is just lie completely under the covers, supine, I don't know, binge-eating Tostitos and watching something less sanctified than the chosen. Fill in the blank. <laughs> the solution to, like, laziness and to the, uh, the underlying despair that laziness produces is not sufficient laziness to the point where you can drain up just enough energy to go about your day again. The solution is remembering That we were created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared in advance so that we would walk in them and then to take advantage of every opportunity for good that we see in front of us knowing that the Spirit of God helps us in our weakness so that when we feel weak but reach out and work like work for the good of God and for the people around us anyway, that's where the power of God aligns with our weakness and does exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we could ask or imagine. And so on and so on. If it's lust, if it's pride, if it's jealousy, Or like vanity, maybe. I mean, the solution to vanity, an overwhelming concern with our appearance and how we're thought of by the people around us, the solution is not to finally achieve some pinnacle of beauty or success where we can now feel confident that we have attained something. The solution is not more self-love and acceptance The solution is the true humility that recognizes that we are loved and embraced by God so that we could be humble like Moses who could say that we are so humble that there is no one on the face of the earth more humble than us and we wouldn't be puffed up by that confession, but we would recognize simply that we're speaking the truth because it's what God says of us. If you don't see that sort of righteousness in your life yet, And I admit that most of us don't. I mean, most of us, our lives really do mirror the pattern that we see in the wars of Israel. Like the first time Israel goes into the promised land, the spies bring a bad report. They have to be purified for a while. Then they come back and they conquer Jericho. But then the next thing that they do is they abandon the law of God and Achan sins at Ai, right? And then in that little town of Ai that Israel thought they could conquer, suddenly they realize that the inhabitants of Ai have pushed them back and wiped them out. A lot of our spiritual lives are kind of more on that seesaw, that teeter-totter. So if you don't see that kind of righteousness yet, that kind of Christ-like perfect righteousness that accomplishes every command that Jesus gives you, even if you really want to, just remember Philippians chapter one. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Don't despair when you fall into temptation and sin. A great bit of spiritual wisdom, this one has been revolutionary for my life, is to wake up every day and to remember that the previous day before is over. And that means that no matter how badly I fell or sinned in the previous day, I now have a new day that's an opportunity for repentance and obedience and submission to God. And no matter how greatly I succeeded in the previous day, That day is now over, and I have a new opportunity and a new responsibility to continue to seek to strive for godliness and to manifest God's mission and purposes in the world and to glorify my Father. It's really, really easy to get frustrated and scared when you see yourself fall into sin and temptation. But it's still true that Jesus, the same Jesus who says to this guy, pick up your bed and walk is still the same God who is saying to you, don't lust. Don't succumb to anger. Don't succumb to bitterness. Don't become a glutton. And on and on and on and on and on. And when he says those things, he is definitely also going to provide you the power if you persevere in it. If you, if you continue to walk with him, you will find that his power is more than enough. Enough and that he will perfect you to the point where you're able to align yourself with his power. I wanna say just a little bit about some external forces that will often kinda challenge us in our ability to cooperate with the power of God that's healing us and giving life to our bodies. so far, I've focused mostly on what it's gonna take for us to overcome the indwelling power of sin, right? I mean, that's what Augustine had to wrestle against when he decided that he wasn't gonna steal any more pears or was actually gonna pray that God would give him chastity and self-control. But some of the challenges that this lame man faces now, that Jesus has healed him and given him the power to obey his commands, don't just come from, in- from inside, like, who's he gonna obey? They also come from outside. Because there are these really important people who come to him and say, hang on a second, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is immoral. And now he has to make a decision. Who is he gonna believe? The person who healed his body or the person who looks at him and says, what you're doing is breaking the law of God. God's God's commandments, the commandments that Jesus brings especially are not gonna be obvious to everybody. They're not intuitive. They're not simple. They're not the sort of things that we would find on our own. Like, I mean, Isaiah says, can you by searching find out God? I mean, the implied answer is no. I want, I want to dwell on this because it's really, really easy for us to fall into one or two errors in regard to temptations to disobey Jesus that, that come at us from the outside, from our culture, from the pressure. One of them, is to say, well, what we really need to do is just stand up and fight for the truth, and to be really pugnacious about standing up for the truth. the The problem here is that a lot of times the people who disagree with us and disagree with the, like the commandments of God that we have discerned in the Word of God is that they also have a really, really strong moral foundation. It's just not like God's moral foundation. And one way I know this is because the people who are telling the lame man that he should stop carrying his bedroll on the Sabbath no matter what Jesus said. They also have a super good argument. I mean, imagine for a second that you're there in Jerusalem in the first century and in the back of your mind, like if, if you had studied Israelite history as a young school kid in the first century, one of the moments that would stand in your memory with the same sort of force that like World War II stands in ours is the exile. is being carried away to Babylon. And you then you went to someone like the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is explaining to you why you're gonna go into exile. And you get to chapter 17. And one of Jeremiah's explanations in chapter 17 is because you're carrying loads on the Sabbath day. And then... Shoot yourself back to the first century and imagine that you are one of the scribes and the Pharisees who's tasked with teaching the people to obey the law of God so that nothing like the exile ever happens to you again, and then you see some dude with his bedroll over his shoulder on the Sabbath day just walking down the street whistling. What do you do? What is the compassionate thing to do even from your perspective? It's to step in and inform this guy that what he's doing is dangerous and violating the law of God, right? Right? That's not stupid, that's not ignorant, that's not intentionally rebellious against God. What they don't know and what it takes is you have to become aware of the power of God that's at work in that moment, that's bearing witness to the fact that Jesus is an authoritative interpreter of the law who sees something that you have missed, that it doesn't actually say in Jeremiah what you can and can't carry, and that in Jeremiah 17, it actually looks like Jeremiah is a little more concerned with the stuff that people are carrying for commercial purposes than just any burden, So Jesus isn't really violating the law or ordering this guy to violate the law, but from your perspective, you can't know that. That's the sort of dilemma that we all find ourselves in pretty regularly in a city like Madison. Um, One of the reasons that I most love getting to serve as a pastor in in a city like Madison is because when I talk with unbelievers, the folks who look at all of us in this room today and whatever they think of us, they're not here, right? Almost all of them are morally earnest, even the folks who strongly disagree with our conclusions about like, sexual morality, about consumption of alcohol, I mean, just run down the list of potential sins and a lot of these folks fall on the other side of the line from what we would call like, sin and righteousness, right? Most of the time, they have really, really compelling arguments for why they think what they think. Not everybody, but a lot of them do. So, when you find yourself in a situation like this guy, this lame man who's now been raised up to life again, and you find that you have to make a moral decision. Am I going to obey Jesus, or am I going to obey the guy uh, who's telling me that I'm violating some moral commandment, that what I'm doing is actually dangerous? Respond with compassion. At least give that other person the benefit of the doubt that they have thought about the sort of moral action that you're engaged in and that they have come to a reasoned conclusion that what you're doing is dangerous or bad. That's one side. That's one way in which we can go wrong after Jesus has healed us and now we're trying to walk and obey. We can get too pugnacious and assume that the people who don't see what we see are like knuckle-dragging mouth breathers who just need to face up to reality and accept God for who he is. Remember that it took the power of God to give life to your mortal body and that those people who are opposing you stand in the same need of the gospel of grace, okay? But here's, the other side of the, here's the other side of the coin. This is the other way in which you can err in a situation like this, is you can just capitulate. You could just capitulate. You could find that the social pressure is overwhelming. And if, if you today are in that position where you feel like the arguments that are coming at you from outside are just so overwhelming that you're tempted to forget about the actual grace of God and its work in your life in the past, I would say go back and remember. Go back and remember what God has actually done for you. If you're in middle school, if you're in high school, and nobody really seems to understand why you're living the way that you're living, it's true that they're probably gonna be a little confused. And it's true that you might not really be able to explain it to them, even if you tried because they have a powerful way of looking at the world and making sense of the world that isn't shaped by the gospel. In those circumstances, I think the best thing you can do is just keep walking and just keep walking and just keep walking because not only will you find that you'll remember what the power of God did for you, but you'll also find that the people who remember what you were like and what your life was like before the power of God hit you will be able to say, hang on a second, wasn't that the guy who was just like laying at the pool for decades? How is he walking around right now? And eventually, people are gonna ask. And those are the times when God will be glorified in your witness. If I could invite the worship team to come on back. Let's think about Augustine again. The same guy who looked God in the face and prayed, God, give me self-control. Help me to beat lust, but don't do it yet. A couple chapters later in the same book, he talks about the path that God led him on to get him to, the, to a different and, frankly, much more mature place in his Christian life. In book 10 of the Confessions, this is what he prays. God, you can command whatever you want. Just, just grant what you command. What you command, also give. And that is the power for Christian living that we see in John chapter 5. Jesus can command whatever he wants. Because when he commands us to do what he knows will please the Father, he also gives us the power to, to accomplish it. So all of you today, I would encourage you, just examine your own hearts. Examine how you feel about your, your moral life before God, about your struggle against sin, about your desire for righteousness. Deep down, do you actually believe that God will help you to obey his commandments? If not, this is God's word to you. God is not scared of your unbelief any more than he was scared of the unbelief of like the first generation of Israel that came out in the Exodus. He was still going to bring Israel into the promised land. He was going to refine them. He was gonna make sure that like the sin that had bound them up dropped in the wilderness and didn't hang them up when they entered into the promised land. But even if you're at that point right now where if you looked God in the face, you would say, I honestly don't believe that you will help me overcome lust." or pride, or anger, or vanity. All that tells God is that he has a little bit of refining work to do to get you to the point where you're ready to believe. He is not scared of your unbelief. So I would encourage you, don't despair. Even in your frustration, turn to him now and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, and then strive to do the thing that he's asking you to do. Whatever it is, however hard it feels, however much you feel like you're bound and held captive by sin, as you strive, you will find that as your will comes gradually into alignment with the will and power of God, eventually you will recognize that you're more than a conqueror. A second way in which I would encourage all of you. In a congregation like ours, when we are facing like trials and temptations, when we're facing areas in our life in which we fall short, one of, our, uh, one, of our, one of the ways that we commonly go about solving those problems is to learn more. We, like, if our problem is gluttony, We go and we read books about overeating and how they're connected to psychological traumas, and we learn about healthy dietary practices, and we install alarms in our refrigerators. And and in and of itself, that knowledge isn't necessarily bad. right? Knowing is better than not knowing. But knowing will never be sufficient to actually give you victory over sin. The only way that we get victory over sin is by relying on the spirit of God in us. So if you find that you are one of those Christians who just keeps striving and learning and gaining more, but you never actually see your life changing, just go and read through the last half of Romans seven and the first half of Romans eight. In the last half of Romans seven, Paul just creates sort of a fictitious character, and that character, what he says, is like, "God." I know what the right thing to do is. I want to do the right thing, but somehow I just can't do it. Help me out. What am I gonna do about the sin that just keeps taking me captive in my body? And then in Romans 8, Paul's answer is, the same spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So go ahead and learn. Just recognize that the knowledge will never be enough to give the life to your mortal body that you need to overcome the power of sin that you're fighting with. You will need to lean on, rest in, trust the resurrecting power of the Spirit of God within you. As you walk in that, I'm willing to bet that your experience is gonna be like the lame man lying by the pool where suddenly you look up and you see the face of Jesus and his arm reaching down. And at some point, you're gonna find that you're gonna be like up on your feet, and you don't even know how it happened. And the only explanation will be that that's the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus working in you. Amen. And would you stand with us and join us?